Let's just uh, bow our hearts, shall we, as we come to our time of study. Heavenly Father, we thank you as we always do for your word. Lord, it really is just incredible. It's wonderful. It's inspiring. It's life-changing. And this morning, help us just to be open um, to the things that your word would teach us. Father, so much of the truth gets obfuscated by tradition. But Lord, you made it very clear that tradition makes the word of no effect. So help us, Lord, to to cut through the man-made things and see the things that are eternal, see the things that are of you, the things that have real value. And Father, we just thank you again for this time we can spend together. Lord, just bless us now. Speak to our hearts and minds. Encourage us, edify us, we pray, that we will grow in knowledge and grace. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we're going to start a three-part study going through the truth behind the tradition of Christmas. And I've entitled it Christmas Past, Present and Future. What we're going to attempt to do over the next three weeks, this morning we're going to look at Christmas past. Yes, I have borrowed a little bit from Charles Dickens here, but uh, Christmas past, looking at the history and the origin of Christmas. Now, if you're astute, you'll realise those two things should be the other way around. It should be the origin and then the history. But actually what we're going to do, we'll look at some of the historical elements, and then we're going to go back this morning and look at the origin of Christmas. And there's some surprises to be had. Next week, we're going to look at Christmas present. And we'll look at the ultimate Christmas present, excuse the pun, but so much of Christmas is wrapped up in the gifts. Just, you know, just bear with me. Um, but we're going to talk about Jesus, the whole basis of why we celebrate Christmas. But we'll look from Scripture at some incredible things that certainly through most of my Christian life, I'd never been exposed to and I'd never heard. And when you start to see how much God has engineered and designed. I mean, let me just ask you the question, how are your Christmas preparations going? You know, do you wish you'd had a little bit more time? Well, just con- contemplate that God spent 4,000 years getting ready for Christmas. That's what God did, getting ready for the first Christmas. Somebody at work this week asked me the question, you know, why was Jesus born when he was born? Why not now? And we talked about the reason why that was the absolute optimum time, historically, for Jesus to come into this world, for so many reasons. So we'll look at that next Sunday, and then the following week we're going to look at Christmas future. Now, what we're going to be doing there is looking at the prophetic scriptures that foretold what was going to happen. And there'll be lots of interesting things to come out there as well. So um, hopefully you'll bear with us. All the studies and the, the notes and the, these slides and everything will go up on the internet so you'll be able to access them afterwards. But let's start this morning then looking at Christmas past. So again, the history and the origin of Christmas. Uh, we're going to ask the questions basically, when was the first Christmas? Why is Christmas on the 25th of December? And then we're going to look at the birth of Christmas, if I may phrase it that way. So let's just jump straight in. When was the first Christmas? Well, Tertullian, who was one of the early church fathers, a Christian in the early centuries, uh, he was born around about 160 AD. Uh, He stated that Caesar Augustus began to rule about 41 years before the birth of Jesus, and that he died 15 years after that event. Well, that's helpful because we know quite a lot about Caesar Augustus, so if you can pinpoint those details, it should help us to give an idea when Jesus was actually born. We actually know that Augustus died on the 19th of August, 14 AD. So that would place the birth of Jesus in the year of 2 BC. There's a lot of questions and controversy about these things, but this seems to be the most credible based upon the historical information we have. 
Tertullian also notes that Jesus was born 28 years after the death of Cleopatra, which was in 30 BC, which again is consistent with that 2 BC date. Now, since Augustus began his reign in the autumn of 43 BC, again, because of the details we know that would also substantiate Jesus' birth as being in the year 2 BC. Eusebius, who was another one of the uh, early Christians, he's regarded as the father of church history, around about 264 to 340 AD. He ascribes the birth of Jesus to the 42nd year of the reign of Augustus and the 28th from the subjection of Egypt on the death of Antony and Cleopatra. So once again, agreeing with this 2 BC date, the 42nd year of Augustus ran from the autumn of 2 BC to the autumn of 1 BC. And we know again historically that the subjugation of Egypt into the Roman Empire occurred in the autumn of 30 BC. So once again we put that together, 28th year extended from the autumn of 3 BC to the autumn of 2 BC. So the only date that meets all these criteria is 2 BC. So just from the historical records we have, 2 BC seems very probable as the year that Jesus was born. But we also have some more information. A lot of commentators and scholars tell us that you know, we don't have uh, any specific information in the Bible. Well, it's not quite true. Because in Luke's Gospel, we're told very clearly um, some of the details regarding not only Jesus' birth, but his cousin, John the Baptist's birth. Now, Elizabeth, who was John's mother, was a cousin of Mary, and a wife of a priest named Zacharias, who was of the course of Abijah. You know, you read through these accounts, and often we don't tend to pick up a lot of the details. Why are we told that? Well, it's interesting because when we start to look at the priesthood in Israel, we find that the priests were divided into 24 courses. That's recorded for us in First Chronicles 24. David wanted the priesthood divided into this way. There's lots of interesting things that, that come out of that. But there was a very strict rotation pattern as when each of the courses would serve and officiate in the temple. They would serve for one week from Sabbath to Sabbath and then the next course would take over. The course of Abijah, we know from First Chronicles 24.10, was the eighth course. Now why that's interesting for us is because when the temple was destroyed by Titus on the 5th of August, AD 70, we know that it was the first course of priests that had just taken office. That's recorded both in the Jewish Talmud and also the historian Josephus records that for us. Well, that really gives us some useful information because that means we can track backwards. We know that if it was the first course there, the previous week would have been the 24th course. And so we can go backwards all the way to when we come to when Zacharias was serving, officiating, his duties would have ended on July the 13th, 3 BC. A year before, from what the other records would indicate, Jesus was born. Now, if the birth of John then took place 280 days later, which is quite probable because Zacharias came out, if you remember, he couldn't speak, didn't have any telly, so Elizabeth, Zachariah, presumably, well, fill in the blanks, but John was conceived relatively promptly after this. Now, if therefore the birth of John takes place two and eight day later, it would have been around about April time, and specifically April 19th to 20th of the year 2 BC, which interestingly was the Passover for that year. It's incredible, you know, when you go through history and you see how many key details happen to fall on Jewish feast days. 
Particularly in Israel's history. So many things, events that have taken place. Now, if John again was born on the 19th to the 20th to BC, his 30th birthday would have been April to 19th to 20th, 29 AD, in the 15th year of Tiberius. Now that's interesting as well, because the minimum age for entering into the ministry was 30. So at the point John steps onto the scene, if this is all correct, he would have been just the right age. John began his ministry, we know from Luke 3 verse 1, in the 15th year of Tiberius, in 28 AD. Once again, corroborating all this idea, this suggestion. Augustus died on the 19th of August, 14 AD. Uh, now again, that was the ascension year for Tiberius. So all of this seems to confirm the 2 BC date. And since John was five months older than Jesus, we know that from scripture, it also suggests that an autumn birthday would have been when Jesus would have been born in the year 2 BC. Now I'm going to come back to that in a moment. But what, let me just highlight again that John's repeated introduction of Jesus was as the Lamb of God. Now how interesting again if John himself was born on the feast of Passover. In Matthew 24 when Jesus was talking to the disciples about the events that were going to precede his second coming, he makes a very interesting comment because he says, Woe unto them that are with child and to them that give suck in those days, but pray that your flight be not in the winter neither on the Sabbath day. For then shall great tribulation such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time no nor shall ever be. Now, the important point to draw out of this is that actually winter time in Israel is not the best time for travelling. You know, the flocks would be in the open field, but not after typically October. They would be brought inside because it would be too cold and not to, not good for them. The Roman administrator as well, or the, the administration of Rome, would never have required this registration that had to be done, this census, during a time when a lot of the countryside would be impassable. So it makes the idea of a winter Christmas time really quite uh, nonsensical. And I'm sorry, but we, we find so many Christmas carols and we have to be so careful here with the, the ones we choose and not to do. Because so how many of our Christmas carols speak about snow? It's just, it's tradition. There's no basis, sadly. And we all like the whole snow thing. But, you know, all the sea amid the winter snow. There probably wasn't any snow because seemingly Jesus would have been born in the autumn and not certainly during the winter time when this census would never have been granted. Reverend Alexander Hislop in his book The Two Babylons, which I'm going to quote from a lot this morning, we've got some copies at the back there. So if you're looking for a Christmas present for somebody, maybe just an idea. He says this, he says, No doubt the climate of Palestine is not so severe as the climate of this country, but even there, though the heat of the day be considerable, the cold of the night from December to February is very piercing. And it was not the custom for the shepherds of Judea to watch their flocks in the open fields later than about the end of October. Another historian, Joseph Mead, says this, At the birth of Christ, every woman and child was to go to be taxed at the city whereto they belonged where the sun had long journeys, but in sorry, but the middle of winter was not fitting for such business, especially for women with child and children to travel in. Therefore Christ could not be born in the depth of winter. Hislop again says, It is in the last degree incredible then that the birth of Christ could have taken place at the end of December. There is great unanimity amongst uh, sorry, among commentators on this point. Now, piecing all these things together Elizabeth, we know, hid herself for five months and then the angel Gabriel announced to Mary both Elizabeth's condition, also that Mary herself was going to conceive and bear a son. 
who was going to be called Jesus. And it's at that point that Mary then goes with haste to visit Elizabeth, who was then in the first week of her sixth month, or what would have been the fourth week of December 3 BC. So if Jesus was born 280 days later, it would place the dates of Jesus' birth on the 29th of September 2 BC, which just so happened to be the Feast of Trumpets that year. You just start to stand back in awe as these details start to unravel. Incredible things. Let's move on though. Let's look at the the question, why is Christmas on the 25th of December? Well, actually, let's ask the question, why celebrate Christmas at all? Nowhere in scripture are we actually commanded to celebrate Christmas. Alexander Hislop says, within the Christian church, no such festival as Christmas was ever heard of until the 3rd century. And that, not until the 4th century, was far advanced did it gain much observance. The first recorded mention of the 25th of December is in the calendar of Philocallus in 354 AD. And that assumed Jesus' birthday to be Friday, December the 25th of 1 AD, which seems to be a little wide of the mark. But after the Edict of Toleration that was issued by Constantine, now Constantine, the Roman Empire, up until the, this point, the first 300 years of the church, the Christians were persecuted. They were meeting in homes and hiding in the catacombs and so on for fear of being imprisoned, arrested and so on. But Constantine comes onto the scene, and I won't go through all the history behind why he changed his mind, but he decides to legalize Christianity. So this was in 312, this edict of toleration was issued. And what happens is that Christianity and paganism start to merge, sadly. Chuck Minister makes a comment, he says, the persecuted Christians exchanged the rags of hiding for the silks of the court. That's very much what happened. Many of the previous pagan rituals were then adapted to fit the new Christian surroundings, supposedly an attempt at unity. You see, you've got all these pagan buildings, and I don't know whether you've ever stopped to wonder, why did the church end up getting on this incredible building program that was great for architecture, but very bad for the gospel, where so much effort and energy was put in these ornate, elaborate buildings, when Jesus spoke of not having anywhere to lay his head? The church was never rich, we were never commanded to build elaborate buildings. Well, the reason is because the pagans had these elaborate buildings, these ornate places of worship. And suddenly, Christianity becomes the dominant religion, if we may put it that way. And so it starts using the pagan buildings. And typically they'd have a raised bit at the front. They'd have a, a priesthood. They have many, many other things. And the Christians started to adopt this style in their worship as well. But also adding many other things. To Julian, even in his day, now this is prior to the Edict of Toleration, about the year 230, was bitterly lamenting this inconsistency of the church. He made this statement. And by us who are strangers to Sabbaths and new moons and festivals, what he's saying there is that we don't worship those things. We're not bound by those things as Christians. He says, once acceptable to God, the Saturnalia, the Feast of January, the Bromelia, the Matronalia, are now frequented. Gifts are carried to and fro, New Year's Day presents are made with din, and sports and banquets are celebrated with uproar. And he says this, which is just as applicable today as then, Oh, how much more faithful are the heathen to their religion who take special care to adopt no solemnity for the Christians. 
Isn't it true today that the Christians will bend over, will do whatever we possibly can to accommodate other religions, other faiths? And yet when you look at them, how willing are they to change their stance? And so typically what happened was the Christian church allowed so many of these pagan ideas to come in. Well, the date of the 25th of December was officially proclaimed by the church fathers in 440 AD. It didn't take very long for it to become now officially a celebration that the church was going to remember each year. So this is why the 25th of December came in. It had nothing to do with the actual birthday of Christ. It was to do with what was already being celebrated by the pagans. And it happened to be a good occasion. As we'll see in a moment, the pagans were already celebrating Something very, very similar, remarkably similar. So let's look at the birth of Christmas. Alexander Hislop again says, Long before the 4th century and long before the Christian era itself, a festival was celebrated among the heathen at the precise, or that, at that precise time of the year, in honour of the birth of the son of the Babylonian Queen of Heaven. The same festival was adopted by the Roman church, giving only the name of Christ. He's speaking of a a celebration that the ancient Babylonians had, a feast called Saturnalia, or became known as, where they would celebrate the Queen of Heaven and the birth of her son. Can you see a parallel straight away? So all that happens with the church is that we name The character is differently. It becomes Mary and Jesus rather than these pagan individuals. This again says that Christmas was originally a pagan festival is beyond all doubt. The time of the year and the ceremonies with which it is still celebrated prove its origin. And we'll see some of that as we move forward. Joe Misler said, celebrated from a vestige of the Roman holiday of Saturnalia observed near the winter solstice, which itself was among the many pagan traditions inherited from the earlier Babylonian priesthood. We need to just make it clear as well here that all occultic practices seem to have had their origins in the city of Babylon. Isaiah 47, as a chapter, alludes to to that very strongly. And Revelation 17 verse 5 also highlights that all false religion has come from Babylon. There, speaking of Babylon, it says, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. That Babylon, ancient Babylon, was the fountainhead of all idolatry that has spread out through the earth. That's a sweeping statement, but as you'll see in a moment, it's one that's supported very conclusively by history. So, let's have a quick look at Babylon. Babylon was the city that was built out of, if I may put it this way, the ashes of the Tower of Babel. We're familiar, of course, in Genesis 10 and 11 of the account of the Tower of Babel, this tower that was built to reach up to heaven. But in order to, to understand this, we've, you know, we're trying to understand Christmas and the origin of Christmas. So we need to go back and look at Babylon to see where this already started. But in order to understand Babylon, we need to go back to Babel. In order to understand Babel, we need to go back and look at Cush. Okay? So that's why we're going to go through this. And you'll see it, hopefully, it all come together. Now, Cush, as I'm sure you're aware from Scripture, was the son of Ham. He was the grandson of Noah. But he became the mastermind behind, if you may put it this way, Project Babel, the idea of building this tower. Hislop again says, Cush, the son of Ham, was the divider of the speeches of men. He, it would seem, had been the ringleader in the scheme for building the great city and tower of Babel. Cush, as the son of Ham, was 
Hermes or Mercury, for Hermes is just an Egyptian synonym for the son of Ham. Hermes was the great original prophet of idolatry, for he was recognized by the pagans as the author of their religious rites and the interpreter of the gods. What's really fascinating as we start to look at this, you'll see names that come up in mythology and various uh, histories of various groups and peoples. But you see, they all have a common source. See, Cush already, we're told here, was known also in different cultures and in Egyptian culture as Hermes, but also known as Mercury. The distinguished Jesinius identifies him with the Babylonian Nebo. Well, that's a name that we should be familiar with because when Daniel's friends up end up in, in Babylon, they're given this God's name. Abed Nebo, the whole, the whole idea is, is the same roots. So again, Justinius identifies him with the Babylonian Nebo as the prophetic god, and the statement of Hyginius shows that he was known as the grand agent in that movement which produced the division of tongues. And this is what he says, Justinius says this, For many ages men lived under the government of Jove. Now evidently they're speaking of Jehovah, not the Roman Jupiter or anything else. This is Jehovah. Men lived under the government of Jehovah. Without cities, without laws, and all speaking one language. But after that Mercury interpreted the speeches of men. Whence an interpreter is called Hermenetes. The same individual distributed the nations. Then discord began. We have a, a, a discipline known as hermeneutics today. We use it in understanding the Bible, trying to understand what things were at the time. And you, you see the root of this is it actually goes back to Hermes, the son of Ham, goes back to Cush. Here's what continues. It says, as well as the well-known title of Hermes, the interpreter of the gods, would indicate, uh, had encouraged them in the name of God to proceed in a presumptuous enterprise, and so had caused the language of men to be divided and themselves to be scattered abroad on the face of the earth. The name many, you may be familiar with that from the book of Daniel, means the number. It seems to be a synonym for the name of Cush or Kas, which, while it signifies to cover or hide, signifies also to count or number. The true proper meaning of the name Cush is, I have no doubt, the numberer or the arithmetician. For while Nimrod, his son, as the mighty one, was the grand propagator of the Babylonian system of idolatry by force and power, he, as Hermes, was the real concoctor of that system. What he's saying is that all the things that led to the idolatry in Babylon originated with Cush. Cush's son is this individual known as Nimrod, and Nimrod is the one that becomes effectively the first world leader or dictator. For he is said to have taught men the proper mode of approaching the deity with prayer and sacrifice. And seeing idolatry and astronomy were intimately combined to enable him to do so with effect, it was indispensable that he should be preeminently skilled in the science of numbers. Now Hermes, that is Cush, is said to have first discovered numbers and the art of reckoning, geometry and astronomy. Now just think, what was the purpose of the Tower of Babel? Well, they wanted to get a better vantage point to look at the stars. Because already by this point, and there's another very interesting side study, maybe one time we can go off and look at as to why, but they started worshipping the stars. I mean, look, even our own culture, the days of the week, are named after the stars, are named after planets. Sunday, moon day. You go through every one of, every one of them, although we may lose 
some of the uh, idea in our translation, Saturn's day, Saturday, so on. Every one of them is named after a star. Where did that happen? It all goes back to ancient Babylon. And Cush seemingly, just a, a generation away from those that came off the ark. It just shows how quick man can, can step away from God. Started getting into this idolatry. And clearly he was a clever man, understanding in science and, and mathematics and numbers. But developed this system by looking at the stars, of worshipping the stars. The Tower of Babel was built with that effect, with that purpose. See, Cush was also known to pagan antiquity under the name of Bel or Merodach. Now, in, in Jeremiah, there's an interesting verse in chapter 50, verse 2. It says, Declare you among the nations and publish, and set up a standard. Publish and conceal not say, Babylon is taken. This is clearly speaking about a judgment against Babylon. Bel is confounded. Merodach is broken in pieces. Her idols are confounded. Her image are broken. Images are broken in pieces. Now, it's saying, it's a play on words. Saying Bel, speaking of Cush, is confounded. The one who has confounded people is himself confounded. Merodach, again the idea, another title for Cush, is broken in pieces. Cush was responsible for breaking society into pieces. And so the judgment is back at him, as it were. Hislop quotes another historian, Ovid, and says this, The statement to which I refer is that in which Janus, the god of gods, from whom all other gods had their origin, is made to say of himself, the ancients call me chaos. Just want to throw this in, because you see another name here, with which Cush got this title. You may have heard of Janus from Greek mythology and so on, this this double-faced character. Because first this decisively shows that chaos was known not merely as a state of confusion, but as the god of confusion. But secondly, who that is at all acquainted with the laws of Chaldaic pronunciation does not know that chaos is just one of the established forms of the name Cush. You see, we use that word chaos. Where did that word come from? It comes from Cush, who brought chaos to the whole world because of the events at the Tower of Babel. So, we've got Noah. Coming down, three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham has his son, Cush. You notice that the curse is also placed upon this line as well, but aside for now. Cush, also known then as Mercury, Hermes, simply means the son of Ham. Bel, Janus, Chaos, these various gods that were worshipped and idolized. And just, just step back a second. Think about this. You've got these people that have come off the flood. They've lived prior to the flood. In all probability, they could have been of physically larger stature than people born after the flood because of the changes in climate and everything else. People would have revered and worshipped these people. As generations started spreading out across, and, and people started spreading out across the world. The legends and the stories. I mean, there's, there's flood legends in every culture of the world. And the stories that map all of these things. Incredible similarities wherever you go. But also, Cush is known as Nebo, of, or Hephaestios, Vulcan. It was also referred to as the father of gods, Merodach, as we mentioned. And then, Cush's son is Nimrod. Ninus is also another name. Bacchus, it simply means Bar Cush, the son of Cush. Belus, Orion, or an Egyptian culture and mythology, Osiris. Just looking at the lifetimes after the flood. Okay, Noah 
lives to 350 years after the flood. But you've got the second one down, Shem, lived to about 500 years after the flood. Shem could have easily sat and spoken to Isaac and to Abraham and shared first-hand accounts of what it was like on the other side. Interesting when you start to piece all these things together. Jacob could have also known Shem for 50 years. I remember going and speaking to my grandfather, speaking to him about the war and the things that he endured and went through and, and so on. Fascinating stories and accounts. Well, don't you think these people would have done the same thing? Well, so many of this has got passed down. Genesis 10, we read, And Cush begat Nimrod, he began to be a mighty one in the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord, literally in defiance of the Lord. Wherefore it is said, even as Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, and Erech, and Akkad, and Kalna, in the land of Shinar. That's modern day Iran today. I'm sorry, modern day Iraq, sorry, correction. The area of Babylon. It says, Nimrod, whose general character was that of the sun god, for he was the first grand warrior, and under the name of Phoronius, uh, he was celebrated for having first gathered mankind into social communities. Just another aside, but Nimrod was the first, as I said earlier, world dictator, world leader. Rather than people living independent lives, he started bringing people together, even after the spreading out after Babel. So Nimrod becomes the first world ruler. He's spoken of as a mighty hunter, but let me ask a question. How did he become so powerful? What was he hunting? Just as a, a thought, could it have been the Nephilim? We're told very clearly about them in Genesis chapter 6, that before the flood, but also after the flood, there were these characters, these creatures. The offspring of fallen angels and women. Well, how many legends do we have about people going and slaying giants. And those people become heroes. Well, Nimrod, we're told, was a mighty hunter. What was he hunting? I doubt if it was deer. Regardless, we know for a fact that Nimrod introduced apostasy like never before. But here comes Shem to the rescue. Now Shem, you've seen already, was alive during this whole period of time. And various historical references... And ancient legends strongly suggest that Shem killed Nimrod on account of his idolatry. Hislop says, if Shem was at that time alive and beyond question he was, who so likely is he? In exact accordance with this deduction, we find that one of the names of the primitive Hercules in Egypt was Sem. So you've heard legends of Hercules, this character that carries the weight of the world on his shoulders. Imagine being Shem. Having seen what it was like before the flood, knowing the events that led up to the flood, seeing God create a brand new world effectively, destroying all the old, getting that promise as they come off the ark that the Lord is never going to flood the world again, and seeing the rainbow, and thinking, this time, Lord, we're going to walk with you. And then just his own nephew, leading the world into idolatry. And then Nimrod, starting to bring all these things, these practices and abhorrent things in. You can see why the idea of Shem having the weight of the world on his, his shoulders actually fits perfectly. Now, just before we move on, let me just give you a little bit of the... Nimrod is the founder, the ruler of Babylon, of the whole empire that he's established at this point. Because of his idolatry, seemingly Shem kills him, hunts him down and kills him. 
That leaves a vacuum. Now, one of the issues here is that he had a wife by the name of Semiramis, who was a lady of ambition. Hislop says this, If there was one who was more deeply concerned with the tragic death of Nimrod than another, it was his wife, Semiramis, who, from an originally humble position, had been raised to share with him the throne of Babylon. What in this emergency shall she do? Shall she quietly forego the pomp and pride to which she had been raised? He says, no. Though the death of her husband has given a rude shock to her power, yet her resolution and unbounded ambition were in flight. In life, her husband had been honoured as a hero. In death, she will have him worshipped as a god. Yes, the woman's promised seed, Zoroaster. That may be another name you've heard. So rather than giving up her throne, Zemiramis concocts and tells this story that her husband Nimrod, though now dead, is going to be brought back to life or reincarnated effectively as the baby she was then carrying. And by this she manages to retain her position and power. When this child is then born, so begins the worship of mother and child. Way back in ancient Babylon. Now, both Nimrod, now supposedly reincarnated as his own son, and Semiramis become worshipped as God. She becomes known as the Queen of Heaven. A title, by the way, that the Catholic Church apply even to this day to Mary. Her son, who she names Tammuz, was hailed as the promised seed. You see, they understood the scriptures. They understood what had been written. We're not that far away from the flood and from Noah. And bear in mind that Adam lived up to not that long before the flood. These things were being passed down. It was well known that God had promised to send a saviour and that that saviour would be the seed of the woman. So she now makes this bold claim saying, well, this is the promised seed. Almost all false religions have come from this origin. Thousands of years before the birth of the real seed, Jesus, false religions worshipping the mother and child were spreading out all around the world. In Egypt, the mother and child were worshipped under the names of Isis and Osiris. In India, even to this day, is Isi and Iswara. In Asia, is Sibel and Theois. In pagan Rome, is Fortuna and Jupiter. And in Greece is Irene and Plutus. These incredibly similar parallels, which just tell on their own that there's a common source. Things like Easter, Lent, Lady Day, the Rosary, the sign of the cross itself actually comes from the tea in Tammuz, worship of relics, the doctrine of purgatory, an elite priesthood, the sacrifice of the mass, and so many other things all had their origin in Babylon. Here's what states this, he says, even in Tibet, in China, and Japan. The Jesuit missionaries were astonished to find the counterpart of the Roman Catholic Madonna and her child as devoutly worshipped as in Papal Rome itself. Xing Mu, the Holy Mother in China, being represented with a child in her arms and a glory around her, exactly as if a Roman Catholic artist had been employed to set her up. You see, even before the Catholic Church came onto the scene, there was this worship of the mother and child in almost all cultures around the world. Tammuz, the son of Nimrod, and his queen, effectively, Semiramis, was identified with the Babylonian sun god and worshipped following the winter solstice, which happened to be December 22nd to 23rd. That's why this time of year. As the days became shorter and shorter through the winter, they became the shortest at the winter solstice. So the idea here is that Tammuz was thought to have died 
or Nimrod, but either way, memorialized by this burning of a Yule log in the fireplace. Yule, simply this is a Chaldean word meaning infant. So what they would do, they put this log in the fire in the evening, and obviously it would burn up. And then his rebirth was celebrated by replacing the log with a trimmed tree the following morning. You start to see where these things have crept in. Ezekiel in chapter 8.14 actually records there that the women of Jerusalem were found weeping for Tammuz. Because of the whole idea that he'd gone out, he died, and then been reborn. On the 24th of December, this is just really interesting, the Arabians okay, celebrated the birth of the Lord. Now that's not our Lord, that's the moon that they worshipped. They didn't worship the sun, they worshipped the moon. And commemorated not merely the figurative birthday of the sun in the renewal of its course, but the birthday of the grand deliverer. See, these ideas had already passed down to them, and they just started finding things to attach. You know, just like the Israelites did at the foot of Sinai, when they built the golden calf, they said, this is your God that's led you out of Egypt. You see, they had the story, they just wanted an object to attach to it. Among the Sabaeans of Arabia who regarded the moon and not the sun as the visible symbol of the favourite object of their idolatry, the same period was observed as the birth festival. So in various cultures this idea was spreading now. This is again a quote from Hislop. The Lord Moon was the great object of Arabian worship and that Lord Moon, according to them, was born on the 24th of December which clearly shows that the birth which they celebrated had no necessary connection with the course of the sun. Now, Isn't this interesting? Because Islam worship Allah, who is the moon god. It's just an extension of what had previously been worshipped anyway. Isaiah 65, I have an interesting quote there, but we've got an allusion to this, many. The the name of the Lord Moon in the East seems to have been many, and and Isaiah 65 speaks about this. Again, it signifies the number of, And it is by changes in the moon that the Egyptian priests pretended that the birth of the divine son of Isis at the end of December was premature. But this is evidently just the counterpart of the classic story of Bacchus, who when his mother, Simeon, was consumed by the fire of Jove, was said to have been rescued in his embryo state from the flames that consumed her. That it was the birth of the Lord Moon that was celebrated among our ancestors at Christmas, we have remarkable evidence in the name that is still given in the lowlands of Scotland to the feast on the last day of the year, which seems to be a remnant of the old birth festival for the cakes then made are called nur cakes or birth cakes, and that name is Hogmany. You've heard of that, I'm sure. All of this has to do with this time of year and the various cultures around the earth becoming a birth festival of whichever supposed deity being reborn in some way or another. Hogmany in the Chaldees signifies the feast of the numberer, or in other words, the festival of the man of the moon. The very name by which Christmas is popularly known among ourselves, Yule Day, proves at once its pagan and Babylonian origin. Yule is the childy name for an infant or little child, and the 25th of December was called by our pagan Anglo-Saxon ancestors Yule Day or the Child's Day. And the night that preceded it, Mother Night, long before they came into contact with Christianity. Just a quick comment about candles. Every time we get Christmas cards, you always see candles, don't we? Why is that? Well, 
Candles, he stopped writing some time ago now, but he says, in some parts of England, lighted on Christmas Eve and used so long as the festive season lasts, were equally lighted by the pagans on the eve of the festival of the Babylonian god to do honour to him. For it was one of the distinguishing peculiarities of his worship to have lighted wax candles on his altars. Just an interesting thought. The Christmas tree... Well, I've already had an allusion to that, but it's now so common among us. It was equally common in pagan Rome and pagan Egypt. In Egypt, that tree was the palm tree. In Rome, it was the fir. The palm tree denoting the pagan Messiah as Baal Tamar. The fir referring to him as Baal Berith. The mother of Adonis, the sun god. And great meditorial divinity. It was mystically said to have been changed into a tree and when in that state to have brought forth the divine son. If the mother was a tree, the son must have been recognized as the man, the branch. And this entirely accounts for the putting of the Yule log into the fire on Christmas Eve and the appearance of the Christmas tree the next morning. It may be asked, does he enter the fire under the symbol of a log? To understand this, it must be remembered that the divine child born at the winter solstice was born as a new incarnation of the great god Nimrod after that God had been cut in pieces. So the idea is you have this part of the whole placed in the fire, burnt, but the next day reincarnated as this new tree. Now the great God cut off in the midst of his power and glory was symbolized by a huge tree, stripped of all its branches and cut down almost to the ground. And lo, at its side, up sprouts a young tree, a tree of an entirely different kind that is destined never to be cut down by hostile power. Now the Yule log is the dead stock of Nimrod, deified as the sun god, but cut down by his enemies. The Christmas tree is Nimrod, brought back to life, the slain god come to life again. In Jeremiah, Jeremiah just gives a, a, a rebuke to Israel regarding this. In chapter 10, verse 2 and 3, Thus says the Lord, learn not the ways of the heathen, and be not, not dismayed at the signs of heaven, for the heathen are dismayed at them, for the customs of the people are vain. For one Cutteth a tree out of the forest, the work of the hands of the workman with an axe. They deck it with silver and with gold. They fast it with nails and hammers that it move not. They are upright as the palm tree, but speak not. They must needs be born because they cannot go. Be not afraid of them, for they cannot do evil. Neither also is it in them to do good." I just want to try and again highlight that all these things have come down from ancient Babylon. But this one I found most interesting. You're familiar, of course, with mistletoe. That mistletoe bough in the Druidic superstition, which, as we have seen, was derived from Babylon, was a representation of the Messiah, the man, the branch. Just as with the tree, the idea of this branch, this new life coming forth, The mistletoe was regarded as a divine branch, a branch that came from heaven and grew upon a tree that sprung out of the earth. Thus, by the engrafting of the celestial branch into the earthly tree, heaven and earth that sin had severed were joined together. And thus, the mistletoe bough brought the token of divine reconciliation to man. The kiss being the well-known token of pardon and reconciliation. I think this is fascinating because his love asked the question is, whence could such an idea have come from? It may not have come from Psalm 85 
10 and 11, which would have been written sometime after the Babylonian captivity. So although some of these ideas go way back, we have this. Mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Truth shall spring out of the earth and righteousness shall look down from heaven. Thus the very customs of Christmas still existent cast surprising light at once on the revelations of grace made to all the earth and the efforts made by Satan and his emissaries to materialize, carnalize and degrade them. You see, even with that mistletoe, there is in there the idea of grace, of God's mercy, of God's triumphing over judgment with his mercy. And I was just trying to think, where does this leave us? You know, some of you will no doubt have Christmas trees. You might have mistletoe. You might have candles. Does that mean we have to suddenly get rid of all of these things because they have a pagan origin? Well, I think it was fascinating just to think back to the comment that Joseph made to his brothers. In Genesis 50, after Jacob had died, they go to Joseph and say, uh, well, dad said that you've got to be really nice to us. Okay? Joseph said unto them, fear not, for I am not in the place of God. But as for you, you thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good to bring to pass as it is this day, to save much people alive. You see, I think this is fascinating because God has taken the wicked intentions of man and has turned it into an opportunity to save much people alive. You see, Satan intentionally tried to take God's plan of redemption through the seed of a woman, tried to obfuscate it by bringing all this paganism and idolatry and everything around it, And what's happened? It's become a festival that most of the world celebrate and think about Christ. No longer do they think about the Babylonian history. Most people are ignorant of all those things. Nobody really thinks about moon gods or all these other things. Even one of my Muslim colleagues at work said to me about celebrating Christmas. I said, sorry? He said, oh, we're, we're going to celebrate Christmas. I said, right. I said, that's Christ Mass, isn't it? I said, well, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. He said, well, you know. You see, what Satan tried to do was to throw everybody off the scent, to try and get people so wrapped up in all the other things. And incredibly, what God has done is make this into a celebration You see, originally it was designed to put a false mother and a false child in place that would be worshipped. And it's incredible that God has turned this around, that now people are more aware of the true mother and true child than they are of any of the, the lies that were propagated. I just think it's an incredible fact that God has worked in such a way and he's given us an opportunity. So I leave it to your conscience what you do or don't want to celebrate, whether you do or don't want to have a tree, whether you do or don't have candles, whether you do or don't have mistletoe, or any of those other things. See, just as Jeremiah said, they don't have any power. You don't need to be afraid of them. But at the same time, we've got an incredible opportunity this time of year to talk to people about the true seed. 
about the one who was born of a woman. The one who really is the deliverer. The one who has come to bring reconciliation. The one who, though we were destined for judgment, has brought us peace. Mercy and truth really are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. You know, if you have mistletoe in your home and you choose to give someone you love a kiss under the mistletoe, when you do that, remember the grace that has been extended to you. That out of the earth did grow a branch. Jesus referred to as the branch. And may that kiss of yours remind you, in essence of God's kiss towards us, the grace that he's shown, the love that he's shown. If you do have a Christmas tree in your home, well, let it remind you of the new life. Because Jesus was born to bring us life. You see, all the things that the devil intended for evil can be turned around and can be used for good. If you have a problem with it, don't do it for the sake of conscience. But if you have that liberty, then rejoice because we have an incredible saviour who has gone to incredible lengths, not only to secure our salvation, but he's given us an incredible opportunity now to reach out to those around us. So I would encourage you this Christmas to talk to people. If somebody wishes you happy Christmas, then try and speak to them about Christ. If they wish you a happy Xmas, correct them. If somebody talks to you about Father Christmas or presents or whatever else, talk to them about the greatest gift of all. Because at this time of year, people are receptive. They're even playing songs about God or Jesus being the King of Israel in places that Muslims would frequent. I find that highly amusing. And people just go, yeah, okay, why is Christmas? God has given us a great opportunity. Let's use this Christmas to exalt and honour Christ. Let's bow our hearts. Heavenly Father, thank you for these things. Lord, there is a lot of history, but Lord, help us always to remember that it is his story. It's your story. You are in complete control of everything that has been, everything that is, and everything that will be. And despite Satan's best efforts to obfuscate the truth with lies, by putting false deities and false gods and having people worship man instead of God. Lord, the truth has not been hidden. And all these years later, as we enter another Christmas season, we can celebrate the true saviour of the world. So Lord, let us enjoy this Christmas time with our families, with our friends. And Lord, although it's the wrong actual time of the year, it's a great opportunity, Lord, to celebrate and to reach out. Give us the boldness and the confidence to share our faith with others. Give us the wisdom and the words to use. But Jesus, most of all, we want to celebrate and rejoice that you came into this world, that you gave up the majesty, the glory of heaven to come to this earth, that, Lord, we could be clothed with your righteousness on account of your life and of your death. And also, Lord, because of your resurrection. So we thank you for these things. Lord, we just say thank you that you gave us yourself, the greatest gift of all. We thank you for these things, Lord, and we just give you the glory now in Jesus' name. Amen.